Thanks for listening to The Awakening Podcast. We hope this message inspires and encourages you today. I'd like to read uh, uh, just a few verses from John 17 to unpack what my Bible calls the high priestly prayer. You know, this is at the moment in Jesus' ministry where he's kind of finishing up his time with his disciples. He's, he's he ministered to them and discipled them. He's poured into them. He's raised them up to be leaders. He's, he's now sending them out to be um, pastors and preachers and proclaim his truth. But as he brings these disciples together, he's praying for them. And this is the longest prayer in the Bible of Jesus, the longest recorded prayer in the Bible. And I'm not going to read the whole prayer with you. I only want to read a few verses. The whole prayer is amazing, and I encourage you to read it even this week and today. But I just wanted to focus in on just a few verses in John chapter 17, in verse 20, where Jesus talks about this idea of unity and oneness. Say unity. Unity. This is what Christ is calling us into. You know, we come to Christ many times alone, right? It's a personal decision. But once that decision has been made, now God is saying, you're not in this alone. I'm bringing you into a body. I'm bringing you together. And there are so many things that will pull at us and try to divide us and separate us. You know, I see different football jerseys here this morning. I'm trying not to be triggered. But but, uh, there are so many things that will divide us. But in in Christ, God wants us to be united. And that's what we see in this passage in John 17. So I want to read this, and you read it with me. Here it is, John 17, verse 20. says, my prayer is not for them alone, for the disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Do you know what Jesus is saying right here? He says, I'm not praying just for you 11, the disciples, right? Judas is gone at this point. He says, I'm not just praying for them, but also for those that believe their message. Who's he talking about? Say, he's talking about me. He's talking about me. He's talking about you and I. If you believe the message of Christ, if you believe the message of the New Testament, this message is for you. Is this message for you today? All right. I don't know how many of you are believers. Let me try that again. Is this message for you today? All right. All right. Good. Just got to make sure. I got to know who I'm preaching to, you know? Do I focus on the salvation call? You know, what do I have? All right. He says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete, say complete, Complete. unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. Three times Jesus uses the word one. And then he wraps it up by saying complete unity. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you we can gather together as one body in your house today. And God, today, together we say we're ready. We're ready for your word. I pray, God, your Holy Spirit would come right now and even illuminate this text. Reveal to us, God, the deep truth, the deep heart of God to be one, to be one with you, 
to be one with one another. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Everyone said Amen. Amen. You know, I love looking at the story of the disciples and kind of seeing what, um, what, what Jesus is starting his ministry with because he doesn't start his ministry with people that agree on everything. If, if you read the, the Gospels carefully and kind of look at their biographies, it's, it's pretty wild, you know? You have someone like Peter who is a, a businessman. He's got his own fishing in his own fishing company, right? He, uh, he's a married guy. And then there are other guys that are disciples who are unmarried. What I love about the, um, the, the show, The Chosen, how many are watching The Chosen, right? New season launch. So they, um, they do a great job of kind of unpacking some of these different personalities. But one of my favorite examples of what Jesus was able to accomplish with these disciples is when you look at people like Simon and Matthew. Because if you look at Simon, the Bible calls him Simon the Zealot. A zealot is like a freedom fighter. They were a patriot. They were someone so committed to the nation of Israel, they could not bear the Romans coming in and ruling over them. They wanted to throw them off. They wanted to actually have freedom and liberty for Israel away from Roman oppression. Simon was a zealot. On the other side of the spectrum, you have someone like Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. That in itself should have made him like, what are you doing with us? We don't want, we don't want to be around you. But he was a tax collector for the Romans. He was collecting money for the Romans, the oppressors. So here, in this group of disciples, Jesus has Simon the Zealot, who is deeply patriotic and loves Israel, and wants it to be an independent nation. And then you have over here, you have Matthew, the collaborator, the tax collector who's working for the Romans. Matthew would have looked at Simon and said, you're a terrorist. Simon would have looked at Matthew and said, you're a traitor. But Jesus pulls these men in because they weren't going to be divided by their politics. They weren't gonna be divided by their social status. Matthew was very affluent, other disciples were very poor. They weren't gonna be divided by who, ha who had more and who had less. They weren't gonna be defined by whether or not they're married or single. They allowed themselves to come together under a united purpose and person, Jesus Christ. And that's what you and I have been brought into. Amen. The call of unity surpasses all of the things that might try to divide us. And God is bringing us into a place where we're united under him. Amen? Amen. This is God's desire. This is his plan. And when Jesus starts to pray for them, it's interesting what he doesn't pray for. Jesus doesn't pray for church growth. When you read... Uh, John 15, 16, and 17, he's not praying, Lord, grow the church, let it be. He knew that was going to happen. He knew the Holy Spirit would come on them. He knew that they'd be filled with the Holy Spirit and they'd be bold and courageous, that there would be signs and wonders and miracles and healings. He knew there would be churches planted. Jesus knew what the church was going to do. The thing Jesus is praying for is the thing that you and I have to decide for ourselves, whether or not we're going to walk in unity. Whether or not we're going to say, I'm a part of that thing. I'm a part of them. I'm with them. I'm one with them. This is the call that Jesus had. This was his prayer for the church, that they would be one. 
and he knew why they would need it. The Bible says that if you strike the shepherd, the sheep scatter. And when Jesus was struck, that's what we see. We see Peter hiding, denying Jesus three times. We see Thomas doubting. Even when Jesus has appeared to the disciples, Thomas is like, I'm not going to believe it unless I put my fingers right in his hand and in the wounds. The disciples scattered. They were fearful. Jesus is praying that they would be one. Because when you're united, there's courage. There's strength. There's unity. There's new boldness. Ecclesiastes says that, there's a scripture in Ecclesiastes 4.12 that says, though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. And a cord of three is not easily broken. When you're together, you're stronger. Amen? Amen? When you're together, you're stronger. And this is why Jesus was praying. And he actually gives us the example. In verse 22, Jesus says this. He says, this was his prayer, that they may be one as we are one. Who's the we? Jesus is saying, just like me and the Father are one. Just like there's perfect unity between God and Jesus. Jesus is saying, now I want you to have that same level of unity and oneness. How many know that's hard? But see, Jesus is the one that declared it. He proclaimed it. He wants it. He desires it. Now it's up to us to live it out, to maintain it. And if you want to be like Christ, and that's the, the, the purpose of all of us, we want to grow to become like Jesus. We want to attain the same level of unity that Jesus had. You see, what we have to be careful of is the lie of Lucifer, the lie of the devil. You go into the Old Testament and you see what, 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 what Satan used to have. He used to be close to God. He used to worship with God. He, was, he would be in his courts, but he started to exalt himself assert himself and think that he was better and greater and didn't need God any longer. That's a lie, the lie of Lucifer. And God says, don't follow that example. But instead, our model, our example is Jesus. In Philippians 2, it says that Jesus emptied himself, that he became a servant to others, that he served others. The key to our own unity is humility. Jesus demonstrated that in his life, humbling himself on the cross, turning the other cheek, humbling himself, being, being born, not in a palace, but where? The Son of God that should have had the angels there and, and, and should have been reigning on the earth when he was born. Where was he welcomed? Into a stable, to low position. This is the humility that Jesus came into and walked into and embraced and if you and I want to have that same unity and oneness with the Father and with one another, Jesus is saying, and the scriptures tell us, walk in humility. Amen? Amen? Walk in humility. I want to cover with you three areas today that I think we need to walk in humility. The first area that I see is unity with Jesus Christ. Unity with Christ. Remember, Jesus is praying that we would be one with him. John the Baptist, someone who knew Jesus, he was a cousin of Jesus. John the Baptist said, let there be less of me and more of him. That's our prayer. In order for us to become one with Christ, there's got to be less of us. Less of us. 
In fact, it says this in Galatians 2, verse 20. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This is the picture that the Bible is teaching us to embrace. There was a powerful moment on the men's retreat, uh, the remnant retreat a couple weeks ago, where Pastor Jordan had preached, and he had us all write our names on a sheet of paper. And he had us as men put next to our name areas of our life that we needed to surrender to God, that we had to stop allowing to be in our lives. And we, every man wrote down something and put his name to it. And then Pastor Jordan invited us to bring those sheets of paper to the cross, to pick up a nail and then nail those sheets, nail ourselves to the cross. What was he doing? He was showing us that every one of us has to be crucified with Christ. That we've got to say, I'm no longer going to live for myself. I'm going to die to this thing. I'm not going to allow that sin pattern or that mindset or the unhealthy behavior to define who I am or linger any longer, but I'm going to crucify that. You see, when we come to Christ, there's actually a death that happens. There's actually a death that happens. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. In other words, we die to ourselves. If you've seen a baptism here on a Sunday, it's more than just washing them in water. No, what you're seeing is a powerful spiritual picture, a picture of a person standing and saying, I am dying to myself. I'm going to be lowered into the waters, which are like a tomb, like a grave. And then they come out of that water because God doesn't keep us dead, but he makes us alive. He gives us new life, new joy, new abundance. He gives us a new clarity, a new purpose, a new vision. All the beauty that God gives to us comes up. And when that person comes out of the water, you can see it on their face. It's like this joy and tears and and just this exuberation because they've got this new life in Christ. This is what happens when we become followers of Jesus. That we're not just believing or assenting into someone or something, but we're saying, I am bringing Jesus into my life. And I hope daily there's more of him and less of me. That's what's happening. This is the heart of God, to draw near to us, to come close to us. There's an old picture from the Renaissance, Michelangelo, maybe you're familiar with. It's called The Creation of Adam. And in this picture, you can see how, how Adam is being touched by God. And notice how Adam's finger is kind of passively raised like he's barely making the effort. It almost looks like he's, he's on the couch, you know, eating Cheetos or something. He's just kind of relaxing back there, like he's looking for the remote control. But what is God doing? God is the one who is reaching out from heaven, assertively reaching, stretches his arm out to touch Adam, to be close to him. That's the heart of God. And though sometimes we are far from him, God is so near to us. When I speak to people who are making the decision to to move forward in their faith, to give their lives to Christ, or or, or to to get baptized, I love hearing over and over again, they'll say something like, like this, like, Pastor, even when I was far from God, or even when I was in the bars, or even when I was in sin, even then I knew God was still around. Like, he would not leave me. He was like, he, he was sitting there with me saying, you don't have to live like this. 
You don't have to go down this road. I have more for you. This is not the person you're called to be. I'm going to save you from this. Just surrender. Your hope is not in this life. Over and over again, I hear these stories. And it's because that's the heart of God. He's close to us. He's near to us. And what Jesus and what the Bible is telling us is that we, he wants us to be one with him. He wants us to be near him. What we have to be mindful of is what are the things in my life that would sever my relationship with God? What are the things that try to, like a wedge, they try to just separate us from God? For Lucifer, it was his pride. For Adam, it was his disobedience. For both of them and for all of us, it's sin. Sin is always going to be one of those things that tries to separate us from God. What are the things? What are the areas of my life that I need to give up and release so that we can be close to God? A second area of unity that the Bible talks about and Jesus, uh, Jesus affirms is this unity with your spouse, unity in your family. God told Adam, it's not good that man should be alone. He told Adam, even Adam, Adam, remember the, 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 the place of the garden and what Adam got to enjoy, perfect temperature, perfect environment, all the food he could want. And the truth is he wasn't really alone because he had God and there was no sin there. So he was having perfect fellowship and communication with God, perfect. But God looked at Adam and said, this man needs another person in his life. Sometimes we have the temptation to think we can just do it on our own. Like it's just me and God. But God is speaking and he said to, even to Adam, he said, this guy needs somebody in his life and he created a woman for him. It's a beautiful picture of God's desire for you and I to have someone in our life, people in our life. And one of the areas of unity that God calls us into is this area of unity in the home. Jesus doubles down on this in Matthew chapter 19. I want to read this with you. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The two shall become one flesh. So there are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. The purpose of marriage, the plan that God has for couples is for them to be one, to come together and be united. And I want to pause for just a moment because I know that not everybody in the church is married. Not everybody in the church uh, has a a spouse with them. If you're single and you're wondering who who am I going to marry or what should I be looking for, the very first thing you should identify is someone who loves God just as much as you do. Because your values are going to be the things that are most important in your life. Not their bank account and not even their looks. The most important thing you've got to determine is, is the person that I'm going to marry someone who's going to have the same core convictions that I have? The best place you're going to find your spouse is in the church. Amen? Best place. Best place. All right. Some of you aren't convinced. That was like a half-hearted applause. I'm telling you, I found my wife right here, not in this church, but in church. We're like, you know, they're they're high school sweethearts. We were youth group sweethearts. And I saw her. She saw me. I loved God. She loved God. The rest is, you know, history. But 
That's the best place because you want to find someone who has the same heart as you. You don't want to be fighting about where you're going to be on a Sunday morning. You don't want to be fighting about in your finances, are we going to honor the Lord with our tithe? When you're going through something rough and, and, and there's a rocky patch in your life or in your marriage, I hope there's a moment you can pray together and you stand together united that we're going we're gonna to stand, we're going to go through this, but we're going to go through it together. We're going to pray. A cord of three is not easily broken. Amen? You're going to invite God into that. Amen. The problem is in a lot of marriages, there's too much two-ness. Too much two-ness because God is calling us into oneness. Oneness. So for my wife and I, even before we got married, we started you know, separate, you know, all those separate accounts, we started closing those, and we had one checking account, one savings account. Because it wasn't going to be her account and my account. It wasn't going to be you pay that bill and I pay this bill. You carry your part and I'm doing my thing. Hey, you're, you're starting, you know, you're slacking a little bit. No, we're in this thing together. So if she's hurting, we're hurting. And if I'm slacking, it affects both of us. So in marriages, and I know in this house, we encourage couples get into oneness. Oneness in your finances, oneness in your values, even when you're parenting. There's a great book out there, and I think it's at the Resource Center. If you're a parent here and you're looking for a resource, pick up uh, Raising Passionate Jesus Followers. Reading through that book hits on all the different stages, baby, all the way up to teenager. I love that book. The first chapter, it starts talking about address the values in your home. Write them out. Talk about them. What's going to be important in our home? What's valuable in our home? My kids know they're never going to come to me and say, hey, can I join a basketball team? They meet on Sunday morning because they know in our house, God first. Sundays are sacred. That's a non-negotiable. And as you start to pray for unity and desire this and start to see this, you start to understand that there's this, this circle. I call it the circle of unity. I want to show you what this looks like. The, the unity circle. That if we start in a place of humility, where we're not thinking about ourselves, but we're starting to say, no, it's about the family. It's about my spouse. Jesus came to serve others. I want to serve others. If we can get into that place of humility, now you've made room for unity. Now there can be oneness and agreement. And when there's oneness and agreement, there's harmony. And there's peace and serenity. You're not fighting all the time. You'll disagree. My wife and I will have disagreements, but we're not talking about divorce. We're not talking about separation. We're talking about oneness. How do we get through this? So even in that place, once we have unity, now there's honor and there's mutual honor, mutual affection for one another. And that only breeds more humility. You want to get in this circle. You don't want to be in the circle of pride. You don't want to be in a circle of disunity. Your truth is different from my truth. Or I've got my agenda, you've got your agenda. No, you have your agenda as a unit, as a family. And then there's mutual honor, amen? This is the plan. This is the, the thing that God is praying for. And what Jesus specifically is praying for over the church, that we would have this understanding that we are better together. Amen. Not in isolation, not alone, but together, amen? amen. For those who are married, and then you're, you're in a tricky spot because you love Jesus, but maybe your spouse doesn't love Jesus. Maybe they're not committed to Christ. 1 Corinthians 7 gives us some guidance there, and it talks about how you shouldn't just abandon them. You shouldn't leave them. 
and say, well, I'm just going to love God on my own then. No, you're still married to that person. There's still a holy covenant there. It actually says to pray for them and actually live your life in such a way that you can win them over. Not win the argument, but win them over. Show them what genuine Christ-like love is. Show them because they don't know in the world. They're not going to learn what grace and forgiveness is in the world. Show them in your home what grace and forgiveness is. Show what patience is and kindness is in your home. At the Remnant Retreat, I was talking to a man who was telling me his story. It was amazing. He shared with me that when he um, started first coming to the church, he was only coming because he was dragged by his wife, and he wasn't really interested in being here. He was an atheist. He, he didn't like God. He was far from God. He would argue with his wife and debate with her and kind of needle her and kind of make fun of some of this stuff, and he just wasn't interested in serving God. But his wife had the right attitude. She had the right determination. She started praying for her spouse. She started fasting and praying for her spouse. You know, the Bible says that the prayers of the righteous are powerful and effective. Do you believe that? Amen. You should believe it. Amen. Because that husband was baptized this morning at the 10 a.m. service. And when I got to talk to him, when I got to talk to him, he said, it was my, my wife's prayers. She prayed for me. And she, not her nagging, right? Not the arguing. It was her prayers that saved him. And if you're married to someone who's not a believer, pray for them. Believe God for them. Ask God to save their life, save their soul. It's amazing what God will do when we surrender to him. Amen? Just amazing. I want to make sure you know this. You know, unity is the thing that we're striving for. It's, it's, it's not the destination, though. It's like the journey. You're on this road to unity. Like um, when spouses get married on their wedding day, they are declared one. But how many know it's going to take the rest of your life to become one? Because every day you're deciding different things and making decisions, and you've got things you want to do, and they've got things they want to do, and you've got to talk about these things. So oneness is not, it's declared on the first day, but you're going to spend the rest of your life, the rest of your married life working towards that oneness. But that is how God sees you. And that's how we see the marriages and the families in this church. Amen? One, unified, a unit. Third area of unity that Jesus calls us into, and that's the unity of the church. He calls us into this. In John 17, Jesus says, let them be perfectly, let they, that they may become perfectly one. Perfectly one. Jesus' prayer for the disciples was that they be one. But remember, his prayer was going out to you and I. Even thousands of years later, Jesus had you and I on his mind. He wants us to be one. One with the church. One with the body. Sometimes I, I, I'm asked by people... Um, especially when I was teaching a church history course where we talk about some of these things and different beliefs and doctrines. But people would ask me, you know, Pastor, why can't we just have one church where we just all worship God together? Like every city and town should just have one church and one pastor and everybody comes together and worship. You know why we can't do that. Because we'll fight. 
Because some people will be complaining about the music being too loud or, or not loud enough. And some people don't like the drums. And some people want hymns. We'll find things to fight about. But Jesus, when he was praying for unity and unity, he was not praying for one institutional church, one organization that all agreed on every belief and every practice. He was not praying for that. He was praying that you and I would have the same heart a heart that reflects and mirrors the heart of Jesus, a heart that would be one of love and compassion and mercy for other believers. And in addition to the heart, he was praying for us to have the same purpose. You see, churches may disagree and differ on, you know, some of these non-essential doctrines, but the one thing Jesus is praying for is that we would have the same mission that we would want to see the kingdom of God in our lives and on this world, that we would want to see the gospel proclaimed around the world. We want to see the church healthy and vibrant. Jesus prayed for a lot of things. He declared also that the church would be mighty and powerful, that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But he prayed for unity because hell can't stop the church, but disunity can. Division could stop the church, even if hell couldn't. We want to pray, God, give me a heart for the church. Give me a heart for unity and oneness with the body of Christ. Amen? There's this one uh, quotation. It's attributed to John Wesley. He was a great revivalist and preacher, and he said, in essentials, unity. In those core convictions, those core doctrines, the things we believe, the Word of God is our standard. Jesus is our Savior. There's one God. Unity. We all agree on that. In the non-essentials, liberty. In other words, if a church believes a little differently than us, or your convictions are a little different on something, there's liberty to have that disagreement. We're not going to shut people off just because of that. But then in all things, charity, charity, love, compassion for others. In all things, we want to have a heart that is for them. Amen? In Ephesians 4, verse 3, it says, eager, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. God's heart is for you and I to work towards this unity, work towards this oneness. In, um, in my family, we, uh, we're sort of like Lego addicts. Anybody like Legos? Yeah, we, we all like Legos. And um, I thought I was a pretty good Lego builder until my wife started showing me what she's got. She's really good. <laughs> And then my kids are all Lego builders. But when I look at Legos, Legos are awesome. They're beautiful, right? Um, this Lego, if it were a person, it thinks it's absolutely amazing. Nobody's as yellow as me. I've got like the perfect, you know, connectors. And it feels pretty special on its own. But by itself, this is basically worthless. It's basically useless. It's really of no good on its own. Instead, what God is calling us into is to come together, to come into unity. So I asked one of my kids, thank you. I asked one of my kids to, um, you guys, it's like show and tell today. You didn't know. <laughs> I asked one of my kids to create a, a church. So he put this together for me, this illustration. This, hey man, you can give it up for my son. I asked him to make me a church, so he made me a church. Um, this is what God is calling us into, not isolation. Like, sure, you can be off there on your own as your single Lego. You're fine. Or you can link up together. You can join up. 
with others. Because how many know we're better together? How many know there's strength in unity? There's beauty in our diversity and our differences. God is able to bring us into a unit for his glory and for his kingdom. This is what God is calling us into. He's calling us into unity. He's calling us into wonders. Thanks for listening to the Awakening Podcast. We hope this message has encouraged you. If you want to learn more about our church, visit us online at awakening.global. We'll see you soon.